episode 5 of the London Ruby Podcast, an interview show from the London Ruby User Group. I'm your host, Chris Lewis. Before I get to this month's guest, I have a quick message from Malcolm Arnold, Ruby Newbie. He's looking for donations of used laptops to take to Uganda and Kenya to help teach Ruby, technology and entrepreneurial skills. Contact NYC at gmail.com if you can help. And the links are in the show notes at lrug.org. My guest this month is Abdul Saleh. Abdul is the founder of ZFM, a radio and podcast recommendation and curation site. We talked about moving from Java to Ruby, scaling sites using AWS and Heroku, machine learning, and the future of Ruby and radio on the web. Abdul, welcome to the show. Hey, hello Chris. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Good to be here. Yeah. So we've got you onto the podcast to talk to you about Ruby, obviously, Elrug, um, and some of the things you're involved in, and also the startup that you've been working on, ZFM. Yep. How did you get into Ruby in the first place? How long have you been doing Ruby? Well, actually, I've been doing Ruby for almost six years, believe it or not. Six years? Yeah, I can't even believe that myself. Um, I started in 2005. I was working for a bank, an um, investment bank, and one of the things we were doing was this big, huge Java project that dealt with a lot of risk analysis metrics and stuff for the, um, for like some of the... Uh, traders and the investment office um, so one of the um, things we had to do was like create a lot of reports we had to push out a lot of reports through at the door through, through, out the door basically and um, the problem was doing it in Java was just taking a lot of time um, and it was just getting really really repetitive and we were like is there a simple way of doing this without keeping mm-hmm. you know doing it over and over again and um, Ruby was on the radar and one of the guys I worked with um, was kind of like, we could do this in Ruby. And I was like, what the hell is Ruby? <laughs> I was like, I just learned Java. <laughs> Don't give me Ruby. Um, so he was like, hey, um, he gave me the pickaxe book, you know, the, yeah. uh, the last one, the 1.8 book. And um, he was like, just read this. And I was like, okay, it's a big book. So um, he kind of quickly uh, went through IRB and was like, oh, this is what you can do. I was like, wow, you have IRB. What the hell is that? And he's like, oh, you could just write code here and it kind of like works. And um, it's like, that's really awesome. So I got really excited and started learning it. And we built a reports generator using Ruby that kind of kicked off, every time we compiled the application, uh, it kicked off all the report templates, which there were quite a lot of, um, and built them from scratch based on XML and huh. um, XML layouts. And our traders and you know all the people we worked with, like the business side of things, we were really happy because we kind of we had this huge turnaround um, built into our um, iterations that uh-huh. they couldn't even conceive. So, but we never told anyone we we're doing we we're doing it using Ruby. Right. Um, so this was sort of compile time scripts, basically. Yeah, it was. Running. It was like uh, it kicked off uh, the back of Ant. So when you're building the app, yeah. when you're compiling the app, um, the Java application, this thing would. Um, create some of the Java classes that were needed for the reports on the fly based on like different variations of the new reports that they needed. Right, okay. Um, so, so doing the, some code generation. Yeah, it was doing some slight code generation yeah. based on XML and some config stuff. But the old configuration was in Ruby, so it was yeah. all just hashes. And all the hashes would just compile, 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 uh, like just run through, generate a, bit, a bunch of XML. Yeah. And then from Spring, way back in the day, Spring would read all the uh, generated um, XML in Java and compile it as part of its compilation run, basically. Okay. Yeah, and that so would spit out all the reports that the, the business wanted, the new ones that they wanted. And so it sounded like 
you kind of caught the Ruby bug then. So did you, was it not very long that you would stick around doing what you were doing before? Did you want to do more Ruby? Or? Yeah, we started doing Ruby for anything. Um, so anytime we have to prototype anything, we just do in Ruby first. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, um, it came to a point whereby, and Rails wasn't around then, actually. No. There was no Rails. Um, this is like so early 2005. Yeah, okay. Um, so Rails... So existed. only just... The, yeah, there's yeah. like a Rails point three or something, and someone was like, oh, have you heard of this Rails thing? And I was just like, what? It's like, no, not really. And um, basically, um, just before Rails kicked, uh, we had a few Ruby user groups in, uh, in JP Morgan, which is the investment bank I was in. Right. And um, it was cool, because people were just were excited about the language. Yeah. And, um, and then when... Rails hit, then everybody got really excited about the metaprogramming side of things, because you could do all these crazy things with it. So um, we started all playing around with metaprogramming skills and how can you do this and how can you override that and what crazy things can you do. Um, I started learning Rails while on the job um, at that time, basically. Yeah. yeah. But we, we didn't do any Rails at JP. Okay. Yeah. And so, so you've gone from learning Ruby and a little bit of Rails six years ago to sort of starting your own startup. Your your startup is in radio and audio sort of projects. How did you get from investment banking to radio? Yeah, that was really interesting. I actually applied to work for the BBC right. two, three times. Twice I got rejected. I didn't even make it through the door. You know, like, I wasn't interviewed or anything. And the third time I got in. So that was interesting. And I think, uh, it, was, I think it was the right time. The, I always wanted to work for the BBC. I didn't know what. I just thought there's a lot of interesting systems, you know, a lot of really background systems, um, doing some ex- some really interesting processing, and and I thought it'd be really cool to just experience that level of processing. Um, banking obviously has the same things, but it's not fun. It's like it's very rigid, and and it's kind of like you know it was making more rich people even more richer, you know. Mm-hmm. And I felt like you know you could do something more interesting. So you were part of the small group of Ruby programmers that sort of formed around BBC audio music as it was then. Yeah. So that was kind of your exposure to, to I guess, the radio side. Yeah, and yeah. And and the prototyping side of things. Yeah. Like just building prototypes. Right. Like interesting prototypes, not just pro- prototyping a library, but prototyping something that's fun. Yeah. You know, something that you can take home and show to people and be like, oh, this is fun, you know, I, I like this. Or like... Something crazy that you can, you know, show on the web and be like, anyone can use this, you know, not just a bunch of programmers who yeah. know, you know. And I really liked that. That was that was really exciting. Yeah. Oh yeah, you can take a bunch of libraries and glue them together, and you've got this bunch of metadata, and you're like, in like two days, you've got this really cool prototype. Yeah. And it's really amazing, and there's nothing to be ashamed about. You didn't write all those libraries, but it's okay. And then building something on top of it all, and everybody was full of energy in, you know audio music it was it was really you know infectious really it was actually a cultural shift more than anything else for you personally yeah 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 so from one type of development to another and yeah so so let's talk about ZFM which is your startup so yes. what what's the concept it's kind of like um, Spotify but for radio talk talk radio programs it all happened in the BBC I had this I had this little rant one day, I think, in the pub after drinking too many ginger ales. <laughs> like, it, it was kind of like centered around the fact that you know, license, um, 
people who pay the license fee are growing older and you know there's the new generations of license fee payers are coming through and they expect more tools and more more interactivity with their content mm -hmm. and um, you know we've got all the metadata that kind of can give that you know can give rise to those kind of tools and really interesting projects um, we, we, we every time we did a hack day or whatever everyone you know would you know come round and sort of sort of use that metadata to build something interesting. But it was all like a hack, you know, it wasn't like, you know, no one actually sat down and said, what can we actually really do with this that people would pay for, you know? Yeah. And I was like, we have all the data there, and we have the skills in-house, you know, there's a lot of amazing engineers, and there's a lot of amazing thinking, and we can do something. And I went on about the license fee for like 10, 15 minutes, and it was, I think, um, and then it was pointed out to me that the people who are paying license fee now wouldn't stand for it, so even though people coming through the door might pay for it, you know, like in five years' time from now, it's not now. And I was like, right. and I was like, okay, um, but but there's still something there. And I couldn't sleep for a week. Um, and I was like, there's something there. I don't know what it is. And then I was like, you know, one day I was going to work and I was like, you know what? Personalized radio, it doesn't exist. Why? Why can't I just have a radio that knows um, what I like listening to? And it's not music because that exists. Um, I like listening to radio shows and I have to like look, spend a lot of time looking for stuff and it's all based on recommendations. People come and tell me, oh, have you listened to that? I'm like, no, then like, just listen to it. And then uh, I was like, why can't I have a radio box that just provides that kind of information? Right. Um, and that, so that's that was what, it. Yeah. So that's what ZFM does. So it, it recommends to you uh, radio shows that you might like to listen to. So is, it, is it algorithmic recommendation? They're human filtered. Yeah. And basically, algorithmically linked. Okay, I would describe it. So, so what's the advantage of a system like that instead of just search? Why can't I go to Google and search for things I'm interested in and find audio that way? Well, there's a lot of noise, first of all, and a lot of the noise rises to the top because a lot of those guys who produce a lot of that noise are into SEO and you know gaming uh, page rank algorithms and you know how how do you do it you know and. So basically, uh, they, they, every time you you Google for something, you get a lot of the rubbish, and the, the good guy that's making those amazing that amazing content, uh, you know, who's, who doesn't work for the BBC, who's just starting their own show, such as yourself, mm -hmm. um, basically, um, doesn't have that many people linking into him, and hence they will never rise all the way to the top in Google's page rank algorithm. Yes, you know, so you need someone to say, look, I know there's all the stuff, but. There's this guy over there, and he's really good. Yeah. Give him a listen, right? And then it's kind of like word of mouth after that. It's like I listen to him, and then I would go back to work and be like, oh man, I got really you know intrigued by this talk this morning, or I was I was really inspired by this talk, and it's kind of like that, you yes. know. And then someone says, but what, is it like a TED talk, or is it like you know what is it? Is it an IT conversations talk? I'm like, no, no, it's it's, it's Chris. He's just on his own. Um, but it is kind of like a TED talk, mm -hmm. you know. It's it's that quality, you know. So I'm making that link for that person because that person wouldn't necessarily agree that you know they might listen to it unless it's of a certain type of quality. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly what ZFM does. It's basically saying so you're taking advantage of the fact that there's people who are very knowledgeable about specific niches and then using that to surface things to so make yes. it easier to find stuff within. We've got we've got an article about this on our blog actually. It's called a, a clear signal through the noise. Okay. And um, it's the reason we we wrote the article and Aisha wrote the article is to clarify why search is better in our own heads. Why what we're doing is better than just someone typing something at a search in a search box somewhere. 
Yeah. And it goes through all those permutations of why you know mm. it's good. So it's yeah, it's it's, it's it, you can't underestimate the human factor. I think that's right. Yeah. So for the people in the audience who are into their programming and into their Rubies, can you talk through the architecture of ZFM? Yeah, I mean, um, we started the whole thing on Heroku. Um, okay. So it was kind of like, how can we get going really quickly? It, coming again from like a prototyping culture that I've learned recently and just building things really quickly. It's like, what's the simplest thing we could do? It's like, oh, just build it on Heroku. So, okay, it's like, um, right, let's do it. So we built the whole thing on Heroku. It was all Sinatra services running on Heroku. It was initially just two services, a website written in Rails that didn't do too much and um, a Sinatra service that talked to a Postgres thing on Heroku, uh, Postgres DB on Heroku. And that was um, the thing that indexed all the programs and stuff. So what kind of service is this? Like tagging services, okay. basically. Uh, I think Open Calais is one of them as well. Right. You know, like, so you've got items of content and you can attach yeah, your own context. arbitrary context yeah. and de- metadata to them, tags yeah. to them, yeah. and then index that large amount of content. Yeah, so you just throw like a bunch of um, like descriptions of programs and stuff and throw it at them and say, okay. just tell me what you think those programs are about. Um, I see. So um, you're, you're passing, so you can pass free text. Yes. The show notes or the description of the show from the provider yes. to this, and then it will extract some semantic Absolutely, information yeah. from that. Yeah, I mean that 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 was what we came to in the end. I mean that that was what sorry what that wasn't the very very start. The very very start was like, can we do anything with the the feeds themselves? Because the feeds already have tags. Yes. Um, and they already have like um, sort of context tags or categories. But as we kept working on it, we found that a lot of them are duff. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that people would just say, keep repeating the name of the podcast and all the tags. Yeah. Which doesn't give you any yeah, content. Yeah, the, the tagging um, is quite limited. I mean, I think this show is in the iTunes store as yeah. technology gadgets or something. Yeah, Because yeah, that's yeah, the closest yeah. you can get to, okay, wow. to you know, to what, where you want technology, to be. software, yeah. programming, wow. Ruby. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, exactly, those were the problems that we faced. Yeah. So then we, we resorted to those other services where we, you know, but the problem with those services is kind of like some, you started aggregating them, kind of like calling multiple services all at once to get, to filter through some the tags that you really want. And that became a bit hideous. What I discovered as well is that just based on pure algorithmic, non, uh, non-supervised learning data, that we couldn't, we couldn't produce any meaningful listening experience. We could, produ- we could produce sometimes interesting reading experience, but as in like, oh, these two things are connected in a yeah. meaningful way from a listening perspective, wasn't working. There was a lot of the data, like you said, because of the way people have to deal with iTunes, a lot of the data was really sparse yeah. and doesn't give you a lot of information about it. Um, once you clean up the data, or you move, move all the stop words, you end up with a lot of things that aren't, words that aren't yeah. really connected. And I was taking the programmer's viewpoint of how do you make this happen. Yeah. Uh, and I thought AI is the answer for this. Yeah. Um, whereas my wife, who's working with me, um, um, she's, she's part of the startup and she's like the product manager um, so every time I throw like stuff you know to her and say oh look I've done something does it make sense and she'd listen to it she's like no this makes absolutely no sense and then she's like look why can't we just use humans you know I know what this program is about why can't I tell you so that gave us another avenue and um, luckily I also met one of the guys from Edinburgh I was in Edinburgh at the time and one, I was going to this tech meetup and when I was having all these AI problems, one of the guys was like, uh, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of AI. I built my own search engine. I was like, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> so was a good person to know, yeah. I was like, all right, uh, do you want to go for a coffee? So yeah. we went for a coffee and he, and he was like, no, no, you're doing it right, but it's not going to do what you need. It's, it's not a simple solution. It's not like what the book says, oh, here's how you aggregate blogs and it just works. It's a very domain-centric 
field and you need to figure out what your domain is and how right. to cater an experience. So in the case of blogs, you're just saying that the domain is just sort of written information. But yeah. With the audio it, stuff. Yeah, you, it's sparse. The, yeah. the descriptions are a lot smaller. Yeah. Um, you don't have a lot of it you, without you, extracting what people actually say within, yeah. the, con- within the podcast within the itself. Podcast. And even that's hard as well. And that's very difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, um, and with blogs, you have metadata about the data. So people are generally tagging their blogs properly because they don't yeah. have a third party like iTunes. To do the distribution. To, to, to do the yeah. distribution. They're just, they have to be found in Google, yeah. otherwise they won't yeah. be found at all. So yeah. people make sure their content is good, so you get good results. Um, so yeah, after that conversation, we kind of we hired some interns um, for a three-month period. Um, and what we did basically is made them listen to a lot of content. Right. Um, and listen and index stuff. And that, that was me stepping back personally and listening to people who are not programmers and just letting them show me the way. Because, you know, it's not really about programming. I mean, it started off as a programming project, but it's really about how do you create a listening experience. Mm-hmm. And then I found two research papers that kind of, like, really enlightened what I was thinking about. And they were about, like, advertising and how do you make... Uh, how do you increase the power of Google-targeted advertising on, on search results and on web pages? And how do you make them more semantic and actually real rather than just random things? So making the um, AdSense ads more relevant to yeah. what's on the page. Yeah, and they use this and, and they scrub their technique. And I was like, this is brilliant. I wonder if they've open sourced some of this research. Yeah. And luckily they have. And then I've used it for a bit. And then while using it, I discovered that they've been using research from another lab. And they've open sourced their research. Okay. So I kind of then somehow ended up with the tools that we have now based on reading people's research papers. Right. And I hide them behind web services. Um, so the, the front end of your web application is just the tip of the iceberg, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of fairly heavy lifting going on in the background with yes. various services that are yeah. just periodically analysing, or do they uh, are they analysing as the content comes in? Or? It used to be analysing on a, on a nightly basis, um, but that was, first of all, running things, things were a bit slow, and then uh, I've discovered that when you're running low on cash, it doesn't pay to do that all the time, because people don't expect new content all the time anyway. Right. You know, we've got a lot of lists, we've got about almost 800 or 900 programs right now, and we're growing them organically, but and we, st- we switched off all our crazy machine indexing stuff, because it just costs a bit of money, and we're ramping up on listeners, because that's our primary objective right now. So you were running these I was running them processes on... Basis, yeah. Okay. I used to get bills for 300 to 400 dollars a month from EC2 or from Heroku. From Heroku, EC2, and yeah. you know, so okay. it was kind of like, and we didn't have a lot of listeners at the time, so yeah. it was kind of like, there's nothing paying for this, you know. Yeah. It was an interesting, again, like exercise in, you know, machine what can you learning. do, machine yeah. learning? But it's like, how many listeners do you have? No, not, yeah. not that much. So do you really need that stuff running in the background? But it helped me understand how you can scale the system, and, or like what would it take to make the system work in the real world? And it's a lot of supervised learning, basically. There's a lot of seed data that has to go in, especially for feeds that, or subjects that we are new to. You need to get some, a lot of human interference with those subjects to make sure that they are actually the content that you get in the description of the, of the program is, is good enough. And the machine could, do, could go beyond just that content because right. it's, it's built a model. So it's That's based on an aggregation of all the content that you already have. It sounds like it started off as almost an academic exercise. It's kind of, but the intention has always been to sort of monetize and have this as a startup. And I know that that took you out to San Francisco and the Bay Area for a little while. 
Yeah, I mean, we went to um, went to San Francisco. We really we wanted to go there for like years, you know. <laughs> and um, so I managed to get a contract um, that for for a few months uh, with Edgecase. And a lot of name dropping here, by the way. Who are you know? So you know, I've got like Jim Wire working for them, and some of the other guys like uh, Joe O'Brien and you know, and Paul Wilson and stuff. And I learned so much stuff just working on that project because it, we worked for a startup in America, and they kind of got funding and they hired a lot of programmers. But they were heavy on how do you make this funding work in our favor and how do you make money? So we built some interesting tools for them, right? But at the end of the day, they had to make money. The software is not enough. The software is not enough, and they had to cut deals. You know, they had to make partnerships. They had to expand. You know, um, a lot of things basically. And yeah, you need software from the, for some of those things. But some of those things just you need to go and talk to people and make connections and pay someone to do a boring job basically. So it was really good being around that kind of environment because as soon as we made some money, we're like, you know what, you know, let's go to San Francisco and see what other startups are doing, and if we can get some funding or. You know, just get um, some some guidance. You know, on how how can you take what we're doing and turn it into a real business rather than just a hobby? That because we because we came to the conclusion that we really want to do this for long term, and it's a really interesting project. It's just how do you make it work as a business? So we went and we met um, quite a few entrepreneurs and we pitched to some VCs. And I mean, the the general theme, the general feedback was that you you're too early stage. We thought we were a bit more advanced because of the tools, but there, everybody would say, "How many users do you have? And what's, what's, your, what's your business model? And right. how are you going to make money? And how are you going to scale it up? Uh, uh, not, not as in terms of architecture or technology, but scale up. How, how is user acquisition? What's yeah. your, what's your okay. user acquisition plan? How does that work? Um, so it was, it was good trying to answer those questions because it kind of made us, you know, like it, it pushed us into like what we're doing now by figuring out that actually you need curators. You know, you need partnerships with people. You need design is a very heavy component in what we do. Um, you know, and making people, making sure people are really happy when they're using your product, and it's not just an afterthought. It's like, it, it's 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 you're designing an experience that has to like work in every way. You know. So you use the word happy. So it's sort of happiness through, through yeah. design. Sound. Yeah. It and does sound very kind of Californian. Yeah. I know it's very hippieish. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true. It's it's amazing. It's like, uh, and it's not happy in the hippieish kind of sense. It's like, it's basically you're designing and then using metrics to figure out. Uh, you know, you design a bit, you iterate. Like we do software. You know, yeah. People in design borrowed those same sort of ideas and tool sets and um, methodologies, and then basically iterating a bit. You know, coming up with a small version of what you want to capture people's imagination with, putting it out there, and using a lot of user. Um, uh, sorry, um, sort of metrics type, type tools, you know, like Google Analytics, but using things like Mixpanel or Kiss Metrics to actually measure interactions with features rather than just, oh, how many people came to that page that day? You know, making sure that that feature is being used, um, figuring out which feature is being used the most, okay. creating funnels to figure out, well, something, someone arrived at the homepage, we want them, we designed this experience so that it can start listening to something. Why are they not doing that? Why, did, why are they tailing off? What did they go through before they tailed off? So when you when you push out some code and you make a new deployment, you can tie that into yes. looking directly at some so, metrics and see so, how, so absolutely. So what whether, we do is, whether that's improved. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what we start doing. Every time we push a bit of code, either after we push it straight away, like you know, half an hour later or two hours later, we tie in all the metrics, or it's kind of like part of the, the release process. You know, you, before you release, you figure out what is it that you're trying to release. 
to be honest, when you're releasing small features, we're making it doesn't you don't need a lot of metrics. You don't need a lot of hooking events and stuff. Yeah. It's just only when you, I, I, in my experience so far, it's you, so you don't go crazy on oh we need to analyze this and that. You just analyze the ba- very basics. Yeah. Because you can you can imagine the other things from the from those basic metrics. You don't need to spend a lot of time writing, you know, adding those to the software. In the context where I've heard A/B testing used and these kind of approaches, they haven't always been tied in with happiness or kind of. The no, job. You, I mean, is it? Is, do you think that the 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 sort of tactile or the emotional response that your product or your software can get? Yes, yeah. is, is that measurable? Do you yeah, think? it's measurable. Yeah, I mean, you can see it by retention. You know, like you have things like retention, people coming back for more and using it more and. I mean, one of the things again, California is amazing. It's it's full of really bright people. They they have a lot to say about a lot of things, and it's just sitting there and listening to them is amazing. It's like one of the things is like designing your system for play. How do you design a software application or an experience for play? You know, how do you Ta- mean play? So all, all taking the experience of using a, a game, right? Okay. And games don't have to be software games. It could be just like Scrabble, you know, or Monopoly. It's very addictive. People come back more and more and you know, yeah. play. You know, it's one of the still best selling games and you know computerized or not yeah. you know well people know them they pass it on to yeah. their kids right you so know, I used to play this and absolutely yeah, yeah. and um, so how do, you, how do you learn from those lessons you know there's a, I went to a couple of talks about you know designing for, game, you know, for play making inspiring your, but not just inspiring as in making it easy to use but actually making it addictive and getting out of people's way but making it like oh yeah we just did this oh man this is awesome and you know so it's kind of like you know just getting inspired by that and you have to design experience with that context in your head, you know, mm-hmm. like, and everything has to work in tandem with that. The software, all the algorithms, all the crazy stuff, all those services that are running on the cloud and doing those weird things that nobody understands except the programmers. Everything has to come to the point of a, you know, a button click and making yeah. sure it's sticky enough for the user to come back. And an individual user, yeah. essentially. And yeah. making them excited. And that would be like the whole experience. Yeah. Um, so that was the biggest take we got from California. How, how do you make that happen? And um, we came to the conclusion that we need a designer, like, it's not just the person you hire to do a bit of design for you on the side. It's like, design is like the one thing that's actually pushing everything because it's the one thing that's making it, it's the one thing that will make you come up with feature sets and those feature sets will get translated into software at some point, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like, that's that's the one thing that's pushing everything. So you you have to make sure that it's working with you iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration. For example, you have to remove features. Right? That's one of the things, again, learned from California. Right. You know, not every feature is a good feature. You know, make again, things simpler. Make, yeah, so Basecamp was a good thing, right? You, you know, when, the, when Basecamp came out, they didn't have a lot of features. They no. kind of grew them a bit now. But it's like, after you release stuff, sometimes you have to watch the metrics to see what you should remove. That feature could be used a lot, but it could be hindering the stuff that you already have. The new stuff that is better. So you have to learn to say, okay, we have to remove that. You know, a lot of people are still using that because they haven't bothered to see the cool stuff that we put on, and that would, might force them to look at. It. And then you might have to start blog posts, and you know, it's not just a software thing. You have to start creating all this stuff to tell people, look, this was cool, but this is even cooler. It makes it easier for you. And if that doesn't improve, then you can put it back, you know, or work around it, or you know, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm not a program anymore. <laughs> So, but if you are putting your programmer hat on, what's got you excited and things are changing a lot in programming, what have you got on your radar, things you want to try out in software or technology? Well, I mean, when we started, it was uh, the back end was based on Postgres. I'm not, these days, it's based on MongoDB. 
So Mongo Debut was a really very exciting thing for me personally. Um, I went to a talk um, in California. One of the, the founder of you know the, one of the technical um, architects of MongoDB was there, and I think he, he wrote half the code. And he was talking about the architecture of MongoDB and how it uses cursors and you know uh, the locking mechanisms for reading and you know the caching mechanisms and it got really it got me really excited and um, I was like this is what we should be running on because before that I was using a lot of SQL um, to get some of the user experience done work done there was a lot of joins and joins in Rails it was just like really horrible code. I was using at the time, I think, Data Mapper, and Data Mapper was a bit better than using Active Record in that context of using a lot of crazy joins. And I resorted to writing proper SQL code and wrapping it in Data Mapper calls. And it was good, but it was slow. I was indexing everything and I was trying to figure out what the bottlenecks are. And I was just like, you know, it's not really worth it. When I saw the MongoDB talk, I was like, this is the feature. And I didn't, you know, I didn't need to hear a lot of the stats about how many people are using it. I just, you're going through the architecture. I was like, oh man, this makes so much sense. This makes scaling really simple and makes caching really simple. So now we're running on MongoDB. Right. It's, so it's, it's been a blast, basically. Um, I got it working with MongoMapper. One of the things about MongoDB is like, you have to leave your SQL relational head at the door and start thinking about things in documents. Right. Um, and documents sometimes could be relational and sometimes don't need to be relational and if you start making them all relational it just gets in the way of, yeah. so of the whole document view of the world of yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's good to have a few people that have built huge systems that you can say blah 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 and they're like yeah but that's not a join that's like you know a, an embedded document you can say this document is good enough to be part of this sub document like it could be a sub document of this document because it'll only be that all it was doing with all those drawings was basically relating content to this thing itself so I'll just store it in that thing itself yeah and I can relate to it from there yeah um, which is amazing because then when you do a call on, on the thing you get the sub documents uh, which it is, often feels to me like what the process you go through when you sort of heavily denormalize your yes, databases absolutely. to the point where you think, well, yeah. you know, it stopped. You stop getting any of the benefit out of doing relational databases in the end, and, and the document stores are kind of built with that idea yeah. in mind. It's that yeah. you add relations when you need to, but yes. otherwise it's all kind of denormalized. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. it's coming to the whole adding relations where you said, but for me it was kind of like moving you know, a schema onto a document thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, it could be, I thought it was simple as just moving it the way it is, but it turns out, no, it's not. <laughs> um, okay. It's not the same thing. You know, you can't just move it, you know, the way it is. So, but it was really good. It, was, it wasn't that hard. And that was the scary thing. I, I kept thinking, oh, this is hard. I have to put it off. But it was really easy when it came down to doing it. And um, JavaScript has been a huge <laughs> feature of my life. Everyone recently. says it. Yeah. yeah. Last um, year seems to be the, the year. Yeah, Absolutely. But it, it was, I'm, 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 I'm scared that there's going to be no Ruby user group in two years. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone will be doing JavaScript. JavaScript. No, I mean, again, using Ruby in, on the services, it's become, it's, you know, it's become so like trivial. You know, yeah. You, you have, like most of ZFM is written in Sinatra. Right. The, the, the only thing that's written in Rails is the web view. Yeah. Um, but the only reason it's written in Rails is because Rails does it really well. Yeah. Um, it, it makes creating web views really simple, you know, like coming up with forums and stuff. So not just, you can do that, you can sort of, but it's not as fluid. You end up pulling in a lot of Rails yeah. helpers anyway to yeah. make it easy. It's not as fluid. And there, there's some frameworks written around Sinatra to, to be able to allow that Rails behavior. But it's kind of like, well, Rails is there. Yeah. It's actually getting better. Um, so why not just use Rails? And as a man who listens to a lot of radio and a lot of podcasts, when people are not listening to the Elrog podcast, what, <laughs> what else can they listen to? Um, 
in terms of technology, um, I'm, I'm not sure really. What are the cool what podcasts? What do you listen to? Well, I listen to a lot. I used to always listen to just a lot of technology podcasts, but recently I've just branched out a lot. And I discovered there's a whole lot, of, whole, whole lot of world out there that I didn't know much about. And um, I mean, I, I like. I'm, I'm actually starting to be really excited about design. So I listen. There's deconstruct. Deconstruct. Um, yeah. It was a conference, and they've got their own um, feed as well. Okay. Deconstruct 2010 um, conference, um, and they've got a feed for that. All the talks in that feed. So you can subscribe to all yeah, the talks and definitely. I would listen to them when you like. Yeah, absolutely. That was really cool. Um, you should definitely check it out. Okay. And um, yeah, I think that's uh, on a techie tip. That's that's the one I would that's, go. That's a top tip. Yeah. Thanks, Abdul. No worries. Man. Thanks for joining. Me. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Elrug Podcast. You can find the show notes at elrug.org. If you have suggestions for the show, please get in touch. I'm at Chris Lois on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.